Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And welcome to Black History Month. Yes, welcome. Caroline, let's kick off Black History Month by highlighting six black feminist pioneers that you should know. Some names might be familiar. Some names might not be so familiar. Uh, but we just wanted to take this episode to talk about some really radical women. Yeah. In honor of Black History Month. And we're going to, this is only the first of a number of Black History Month episodes that we're going to do. We're very excited about this. We are. We are very excited. But, Caroline, before we start talking about um, these women, these incredible women, you know what we got to talk about first? What? Ourselves. Oh, obviously. we got to talk about obviously. ourselves. Obviously. What I mean is, okay, we, we need to address briefly the issue of privilege, because we're going to be talking about uh, black women and feminism and how feminism relates to to black women. And as two women of Caucasian descent with very fair skin that is easily sunburned, mm-hmm. um, we should talk about privilege first, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, basically recognizing that privilege is the key to having a good discussion about feminism and about black feminism in particular, which is what we'll be focusing on in this episode. Because it was Bell Hooks, the feminist writer with the lowercase name, who we'll talk about later in this episode, who said that feminism ignores non-white and poor white women. Books like The Feminine Mystique overlooked an entire portion of the population. So it's important to admit that we are, as young white women, Kristen, uh, as the feminist wire would put it in May 2012, uh, we have been afforded certain unearned privileges on the basis of one or more parts of our identity. Yeah, and that part of our identity would be, uh, you know, the being white, Essentially, and and speaking more to uh, the connection between like the the feminine mystique and Betty Friedan and second wave feminism, um, there was a huge criticism and rightfully so about how it was largely a movement initially that that really did speak directly to the needs of middle and upper middle class white women. Um, and to, to get more of a sense of that, let's go back again to Bell Hooks. She writes, Friedan's famous phrase, the problem that has no name, that's from the Feminine Mystique, often quoted to, to describe the condition of women in this society, actually referred to the plight of a select group of college-educated, middle and upper class, married white women, housewives, bored with leisure, with home, with children, with buying products, who wanted more out of life. And for black women listening to that at the time, and even today, um, they were like, well, that you are incredibly privileged to be wanting to fight this fight because, you know, you're talking about, oh, well, you know, we want to get outside of the home. And these these other women who uh, were not afforded luxuries like going to college and uh, maybe even being able to stay um, in the home had been working outside of the home for a long time. And this also reminded me of our domestic service 
podcast. Um, and when we were researching for that, uh, we found some uh, some commentary on how the National Organization for Women at the time was in favor of extending the Fair Labor Standards Act to household workers in order to make that field more attractive to lower class women since the those middle and upper class college educated women who were organizing with now were going to be needing to leave the home. So they would need someone else to come in and take care of it. So we're not saying that second wave feminism is bad. It just overlooked a lot. Right. And Hooks wrote that, you know, the concerns of housewives of whatever class were worth being considered. But, she said, they were not the pressing political concerns of masses of women. And so then you get into uh, black feminism, which is distinct from uh, f- like feminism, second wave feminism, I guess you would say, and intentionally so. Right. Black feminism was something that existed outside of both regular mainstream feminism and the black liberation movement. A lot of activists at this time point out, like we've already talked about, that the middle class white housewife concerns were not the same as those of a lot of either poor white people or people of color. But neither were the concerns of the black liberation movement entirely covering those of black feminists, because a lot of people point out the black liberation movement had a lot to do with men's, black men's rights and their manhood and their, you know, basically extending their rights in society. Yeah, I, I, I forget um, which feminist scholar was writing about this, but she she pointed out that for black women at the time who were engaged in the black liberation movement, and that encompasses several movements such as civil rights movement, black nationalism, black panthers, student nonviolent coordinating committee, um, when they would be in conversations, when the word men would be dropped, it would be in reference to black men. When the word feminism would be dropped, it would be inherently in reference to white women. And so they were saying, well, where are we? And so black feminism was born out of this. Um, we can, we'll also bring up womanism later in the podcast, which is a word coined by Alice Walker to uh, delineate uh, a more intersectional um, feminism from the, from the mainstream to encompass everybody, not just not just white women, essentially. Yeah, Bell Hooks wrote. Going back to Bell Hooks, who is wonderful, she wrote that black women basically denied a part of themselves. This is coming from her book "Ain't I a Woman." She says contemporary black women could not join together to fight for women's rights because we did not see quote womanhood as an important aspect of our identity. Racist, sexist socialization it conditioned us to devalue our femaleness and to regard race as the only relevant label of identification. So there's this push to see not just your race but also your gender and how those two things combine to shape both who you are and how the outside world views you. Mm-hmm. And considering um, that the way that uh, those kind of things have been overshadowed by uh, the the culture that they were living in and society for a long time, um, why don't we talk about these six women who were like, you know what, I am really not going to have this. I don't care. I have a voice. I have a mind. And I'm going to speak it. And I'm going to pave the way for some incredible change. Yeah, one of those women was Maria Stewart. She lived from 1803 to 1879. This is coming from a, a PBS article about her. She was actually born free in Boston, 
orphaned at the age of five and uh, subsequently hired out as a domestic worker. She was largely self-taught. She she really worked hard during her time as a domestic worker to educate herself, and she ended up meeting David Walker, who was the author of the Anti-Slavery Treatise, An Appeal to the Colored People of the World. And after his death, Walker's death, she ended up writing articles for the abolitionist paper The Liberator, publishing anti-slavery tracts, and becoming one of the first, if not the first, there is a question about who was the first, uh, African-American woman to speak in public, and not only in public, Chris, in front of a promiscuous audience of both men and women. Now, by promiscuous, we mean uh, that's an old school term for both men and women. Right, mixed gender. How scandalous. Yeah, and and some scholars say that she represents the first public representation of black feminism because a lot of her um, speeches that she gave, well, and I say a lot of her speeches, she only spoke uh, publicly for, I want to say, like four years um, but during that time, uh, a lot of her stuff focused more on uh, pro-black nationalism. But she was also very insistent, not just in extending education to black children, but specifically to girls and talking about how women need education just as much as those boys do. And um, she published, this was also very rare for a woman at the time, much less um, an African-American woman at the time. She published her writings in a book called The Meditations from the Pen of Mrs. Maria W. Stewart. So yeah, in addition to this writing and her you know, emphasis on morality, religion, and education, she was actually a public school teacher in New York and founded schools in Baltimore and Washington, D.C., yeah, and uh, her speeches and essays were part of a growing abolitionist movement and a stimulus for the women's rights movement, and um, and that's really important. Like to to talk about how uh, there she bridged not only abolition but also women's rights because um, that was pretty rare at the time as well. If we uh, go back to a quote from Sojourner Truth, for instance, she once said, there's a great stir about colored men getting their rights, but not a word about colored women. And if colored men are to get their rights and not colored women, there's you see the colored men will be masters over the women and it will be just as bad as it was before. And uh, what Maria Stewart did was kind of uh, hearken to those those words from Sojourner Truth and advocate for women to educate themselves and, and rise up as well. Now, you mentioned, Caroline, that Stewart was a public school teacher and founded schools in Baltimore and D.C., and that is an excellent transition to our next inspiring woman, Daisy Bates, because she led the effort to integrate schools, public schools, in Arkansas. Yeah, she and her husband actually have a great story. They worked very closely together to end segregation and improve education for black students. She was actually the president of the Arkansas NAACP, and her husband was its regional director. And they went on to run a newspaper together. He was the publisher of the Arkansas State Press, which is the largest black newspaper in the state, and she was his star reporter. And, you know, of course, like when he was out of town, she filled in as publisher and editor and all this stuff. So they were actually a very dynamic couple. So Daisy and the NAACP took the Little Rock School Board to task after uh, the Supreme Court's 1954 call to end segregation. And she helped recruit those nine bright kids who would defy segregationists. 
1954, that Brown versus Topeka Board of Education decision from the Supreme Court struck down the previous separate but equal ruling. And Daisy Bates said, hey, you know what? <laughs> Guess what? It's time, Little Rock, for uh, for us to follow suit and desegregate as well. Of course, this was uh, not greeted with open arms by either the school board or really any of the white people in Little Rock, it seems like. And her house became the headquarters for the plan and execution of this. Now that it's also became a target mm-hmm. for uh, for people who were looking to do violence against those wishing to desegregate. Um, and speaking to NPR, Ernest Green, who is one of the Little Rock Nine, uh, that group of students who integrated Central High School, said... Daisy Bates was the poster child of black resistance. She was a quarterback, the coach, and we were the players. Yeah, and after this this whole event, uh, an advertiser boycott of the couple's paper forced it to shut down in 1959, but she was not down and out. In 1984, she brought the paper back, and that same year ended up receiving an honorary Doctor of Laws degree from University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Yeah, and in honor of uh, the work that Daisy Bates did, because she became like the national spokesperson for, I mean, not just something that was happening in Little Rock, but it was symbolic for the the civil rights movement that was kicking off all over the nation. And uh, for that work, she became the first and only still African-American to lie in state at the Arkansas Capitol uh, when she died in 1999. And one of Daisy Bates's contemporaries was a lawyer and activist by the name of Flo Kennedy. Uh, this is coming from the New York Times, who wrote an incredible obituary about Kennedy, pointing out that she was very recognizable in a cowboy hat and pink sunglasses, often with her middle finger in the air. And it was her flamboyant attire that drew attention to the very powerful words and deeds that she did surrounding civil rights and feminism. Yeah, I feel like Flo Kennedy was kind of an embodiment of uh, second wave feminism going on in um, the late 60s. She would tour around, actually, with Gloria Steinem and uh, talking about feminism. And a lot of times, as, as Steinem now tells, there would be men in the audience who would at some point stand up and say, are you guys, are you two lesbians or what? And Flo Kennedy would look at them and say, well, why? Are, I mean, are you the, my alternative? <laughs> And then everyone be like, oh, burn, dis, <laughs> snap. But yeah, she uh, she has a really interesting law school story. She was one of the first black women to graduate from Columbia Law School and was admitted to the school after threatening a discrimination suit. So when she got in, she was one of eight women in the class and the only black person. And after she graduated in 1951, she worked for a Manhattan law firm before opening her own law office in 1954. Unfortunately, she ha- actually had to take a job at Bloomingdale's at one point to pay the rent because she was struggling in her law practice. Yeah, um, and practicing law initially soured Flo Kennedy because uh, what she did at first was the the first vacation she got at least were representing the estates of Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker to recover money owed to them from record companies and she says that handling those cases quote taught me more than I was really ready for about government and business delinquency and the hostility and helplessness of the courts and that 
energized Flo Kennedy to then move far more into straight-up activism. For instance, uh, in 1966, she set up the organization Media Workshop to fight racism in journalism and advertising. And then the legal cases that she took on from there were almost always very overtly political. Yeah, in 1968, she actually sued the Roman Catholic Church for what she viewed as interference with abortion. In 1969, there are two big cases. The first, she organized a group of feminist lawyers to challenge the constitutionality of New York's abortion law, and also that year helped represent and helped get acquitted 21 Black Panthers on trial for conspiracy to commit bombings. And on top of that, because you know she wasn't busy or anything like that, uh, she was a founding member of the National Organization uh, for Women. She didn't really stay highly involved with Now that long because she always wanted to keep starting these little these little fires everywhere. And I say that in in a positive way. For instance, in 19, 1971, she founded the Feminist Party, the political party, which nominated Representative Shirley Chisholm for president, and uh, one of her. One of her colorful, many colorful quotes that she left behind that uh, the New York Times quoted in their obituary ever was, uh, quote, I'm just a loud mouth, middle aged, colored lady with a few spine and three feet of intestines missing. And a lot of people think I'm crazy. Maybe you do, too. But I never stop to wonder why I'm not like a lot of other people. The mystery to me is why more people aren't like me. Yeah. Well, another uh, colorful character that I know we've talked about on the podcast before is Audre Lorde, who was a poet who died in 1992 after a long battle with cancer. And a lot of her work was actually inspired by that battle. But she referred to herself as a black feminist lesbian mother poet. You forgot warrior. Oh, I can't forget warrior. Black feminist lesbian mother warrior poet. That, yeah, that that was a bad omission. I mean, talk about a title. Can you fit all of that on a business card? (laughs) Audre Lorde was one of the earlier uh, spokespeople, in a way. That's not the correct term, but um, her writing really highlighted what we would now come to call intersectionality. In other words, she celebrated differences because her passion was for liberation of oppressed peoples and organizing across differences in race, gender, sexual orientation, class, age, and ability. And she found marginalization in categories like lesbian or black women. Lord actually you know, knew she was different from an early age and was very sensitive. She actually communicated through Poetry, And she says that if she didn't, you know, have a poem memorized to basically summarize how she felt, she would start making her own. So around 12 or 13, she started writing poetry, which launched her into a whole career in academia. And interestingly, her first poem was accepted into Seventeen magazine. She actually saw art as a way to protest destructive social patterns. So from her position as a popular poet, she really kind of took the hammer to people who were, you know, racist, homophobic, just basically afraid of differences in society. She said that my sexuality is part and parcel of who I am, and my poetry comes from the intersection of me and my worlds. Jesse Helms, who's uh, who was a white conservative senator, 
Jesse Helms' objection to my work is not about obscenity or even about sex. It is about revolution and change. Helms represents white patriarchal power, and he knows that my writing is aimed at his destruction and the destruction of every single thing he stands for. Yeah, I feel like Audre Lorde, uh, one of the bravest women. <laughs> she, she clearly was not not afraid to speak her mind. And speaking of her sexuality, she did initially marry attorney Edwin Rollins, and they had two kids together, then they got divorced, and then she got together with who would become her 20-year partner, Frances Clayton. And, and a lot of her poetry does focus on um, sexuality. She spoke very openly about um, being a lesbian, but also her concept of being a lesbian, which did not just include you know, women who openly identified with being attracted to other women, but really all women in, in general. Um, but I feel like all of that roots, though, back to her passion for intersectionality. Um, here's a quote from um, her 1983 book, There Is No Hierarchy of Oppressions. She writes, I cannot afford the luxury of fighting one form of oppression only. I cannot afford to believe that freedom from intolerance is the right of only one particular group. And I cannot afford to choose between the fronts upon me, which I must battle these forces of discrimination wherever they appear to destroy me. And when they appear to destroy me, it will not be long before they appear to destroy you. And I feel like, I, I don't know about you, Caroline, but I feel like intersectionality is something that only just now, I mean, that she was writing that in 1983, it's 2013, and I feel like it's only something that even now is starting to kind of break through to more mainstream conversations of taking all of these things into account, all the different types of discrimination that exists. So she was definitely a pioneer in that way of of, of, of seeing the multi-dimensional um, forms of oppression. And she also received a number of accolades for her poetry. She was named New York State Poet Laureate, actually, in 1991. And she was still a Poet Laureate when she died from cancer the following year in 1992. Well, one woman that we've already mentioned earlier uh, who is more of a contemporary writer is Bell Hooks, who was born Gloria Watkins. She actually uh, adopted her pseudonym not only to honor her grandmother, whose name she took, and her mother, but she felt that it established a separate voice from that of Gloria Watkins and put the focus on her writing. That's She felt that the lowercasing her name put more of the focus on her writing. She said that she was a, quote, suicidal, depressed teen when she began to resist male domination, to rebel against patriarchal thinking, and to oppose the strongest patriarchal voice in my life, my mother's voice. Uh, she asked her readers to imagine, quote, imagine living in a world where there is no domination, where females and males are not alike or even always equal, but where a vision of mutuality is the ethos shaping our interaction. She really looked forward to a day that feminism would let men and women be, quote, fully self-actualized in order to establish a real community. Yeah, and a lot of um, Hooks' scholarship has not only looked into Feminism, but also applying that um, gendered scholarship to looking at pop culture and how 
um, men and women and how race and ability and uh, sexual orientation, all of that are portrayed and consumed by the masses. She also is very much um, anti-materialism. Uh, there was a New York Times article that I found which focused really just on the sparseness of her apartment. She was living in New York at the time. Right now, she is a distinguished professor in residence in Appalachian Studies at Berea College in Kentucky. And I feel like one of the reasons why uh, people love bell hooks she's she's often cited um in any kind of like feminist 101 article you might read is because of for instance uh from her 1984 feminist theory from margin to center uh this little nugget she writes uh, feminism is a struggle to end sexist oppression its aim is not to benefit solely any specific group of women any particular race or class of women it does not privilege women over men it has the power to transform meaningfully all of our lives. And she also ties in a lot of intersectionality and, and is very insistent on us knowing what we're talking about when we're talking about feminism. Um, and some critics have said that Bell Hooks is too political. Others have said that she's not radical enough. And, and maybe because of the notoriety that she's gotten and the, the backlash as well, she has kind of remained out of the public eye a lot. Actually, the most recent thing that I... Read written by Bell Hooks was a review of Beasts of the Southern Wild. And spoiler alert, she did not like it. We also heard something recently from uh, the sixth woman on our list, Alice Walker. She wrote the poem Democratic Womanism for the 2012 election, talking about regime change, but not the type of regime change that we would think of when a presidential election is taking place. She wrote... Where women rise to take their place en masse at the helm of the earth's frail and failing ship. She says in the poem, I am thinking of democratic and perhaps socialist womanism. For who else knows so deeply how to share but mothers and grandmothers, big sisters and aunts? To love and adore both female and male, not to mention those in between. So Alice Walker, for those who who don't know her, is an author, poet, and activist, and she happens to be the first African-American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in fiction, and that was in 1983 for The Color Purple. Uh, and she was the one, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, who coined the term womanist and womanism in 1983, and she derived it from the word womanish, which is the opposite of girlish. Um, and she defines it as a black feminist or feminist of color from the black folk expression of mothers. You're acting womanish, usually referring to outrageous, audacious, courageous or willful behavior. Um, and it's interesting, too, that um, Rebecca Walker, her daughter, who they, they've had kind of a, a publicly uh, not hostile, but distant relationship. But her daughter, Rebecca, coined the term third wave feminism. So my goodness. It runs in the family. It does. She also defined womanist as a woman who loves women, whether sexually or non-sexually, appreciates and prefers women's culture, emotional flexibility, and strength, and loves herself, quote-unquote, regardless. And she said that womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. So I guess she thought it was a more all-encompassing A stronger term, term yeah. it seems like. Um, so those are six women. We've only highlighted them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we could go far more in depth in their biographies, but we just wanted to take a moment to kick off Black History Month by celebrating some pretty incredible and controversial women, um, who weren't afraid to, to be controversial and defy, 
uh, society's place for them. Uh, and so with that, if you um, have any thoughts, uh, any anything we left out, anyone you would like to hear about, uh, write to us, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. And we have a couple of letters to share for you. Hi, Caroline, to kick one off, I have a letter here from Jenna, and it is an older topic that she writes about. It is in regard to proposals, but I got a kick out of it, so I decided, why not? Let's read it. She said, I just wanted to share my proposal story because technically, I proposed. I'm a female, and it wasn't intentional. It just sort of happened naturally. I looked up at my boyfriend after I woke up from a nap with him and sleepily asked if I could, quote unquote, keep him. He said yes, and then we got married several months after that. We both got each other rings, and he wanted others to know that he was taken, so he wore his before we got married. We're going on year six, and there don't seem to be any tragic nuances from this non-traditional beginning, so we'll take it. We have a wall hanging that says, Can I keep you on it to remember that cute afternoon nap when we made that life-changing decision? When you know, you know, right? He's my favorite, and I think I'm his favorite, too. So thanks, Gina. Okay, I have a letter from DM about our Gynecologist 101 episode. She says, I wish I had listened to this podcast when I was younger. One thing I'd like to add is that for those of us who are lesbians, bisexual, transgender, or simply just not heterosexual or heteronormative, it can be very awkward to engage in communication with our gynecologists. I've had gynecologists who only ask about sex with men, but my new gynecologist asks about both men and women, and I really appreciate it because otherwise, I don't think I would have brought it up. It was hard for me to speak up or ask questions in the first few times because I was nervous. I think this is very important for doctors to ask questions beyond heterosexual sex, not only because it is better communication and builds trust between the doctor and the patient, but also because I've met several non-heterosexual women who do not think it is important to see a gynecologist because they do not engage in sex with men, or they feel uncomfortable speaking with their doctor about non-heterosexual sex. I wish more doctors could be like my doctor and engage with LGBT patients in a way that makes us feel more comfortable because our health is at stake. So thank you, DM. And thanks to everyone who's written in to momstuffatdiscovery.com. You can also send us a message on Facebook, like us there while you're at it, and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. We're on Tumblr as well. You can follow us at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you would like to make your brain smarter this week, you can head over to our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 